Let us open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open your scriptures. We thank you that you have preserved them from ages past for us, even this day. As we have sung, we thank you, Lord, that you have opened up the windows of revelation upon our lives. You have revealed to us our sin. You have revealed to us our Savior. You have brought us forth from the miry clay and death of sin unto new life in Christ. We worship and praise you this day for what you have done, for your glory and great name. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity now to open your scriptures to see further the explanation and the powerful purchasing power of Christ's blood for our lives, that we might worship you, Lord, in spirit and in truth and share with those who are yet blind to the gospel, the word of Christ. I pray that you would make us good household managers in the time between when we come to Christ and your second coming. I pray, Lord, that you would equip your church through the preaching of your word to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that you have commanded us, Lord, until the end of the age. And we thank you that you, by your Holy Spirit, are with us this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This morning's message comes from Matthew 24, continuing in our series. Towards the end of the chapter, verses 42 through 51, we pick up on a picture, an analogy, that I've labeled household management to help us understand the waiting time that Jesus tells his disciples to expect from his ascension to his return in judgment. And I submit to you this morning, the application for our day is every bit as relevant. Because we ourselves live within in a waiting time between when we come to Christ and the second coming. And so the analogy applies for us today. May we be good household managers, as it were, in the interim period. If you would open up your scriptures with me to Matthew 24, verses 42 through 51, I ask you to stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God and let us see what our Master says to us today. Follow along with me as I declare God's holy word, Matthew 24, 42. It says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. In these verses and in this fifth discourse, our Lord continues to enlighten the disciples on kingdom of God realities. In this case, ideas related to timing feature prominently. We have this analogy of 
household management, which is followed by two waiting parables, as I've called them. The first is the ten virgins, followed by the parable of the talents. In each of these cases, there is instruction given in this picture form to equip the disciples for a period of time in which there will be difficulty and and a time that they are called to wait upon the Lord's promises in a day when when many would discourage them from doing so. He enlightens the disciples to the kingdom of God realities involved with managing his affairs in his absence as it were, though he was with them in spirit. Still, there would be an occasion for them to, in faith, continue to labor towards the end that he had given them, although the promise of his, uh, the fulfillment of the promise laid yet on the horizon. In this case, these ideas of timing help the disciples to keep perspective in a day that is going to be dark and by numerous uh, opportunities for them to be discouraged, including persecution and various trials. This master of household and servants analogy is followed immediately by the two waiting parables I mentioned before, and they draw on pictures of preparation and economics also to help us understand. There is a stewardship call, that is to say, for those who wait for the Lord and the promised fulfillment of His will in history. We also learn from this text that waiting is dangerous, as waiting is dangerous, Uh, The accounting at the end of the waiting period is decisive, and true servants are diligent. Waiting is dangerous. The accounting at the end of that waiting period is decisive, and true servants are diligent. These themes occur over and again in the fifth discourse of Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25, as well as other areas that we will see today in the gospel. These three uh, discourses show themselves in, in, or these three themes in the discourse reveal themselves in manifold ways. We'll touch on a few today, as well as draw from the broader uh, scope of Matthew's account. They are not unique to the end of Jesus' teaching ministry either. These themes, of, these themes have been building throughout the book, and a broader look will soon reveal more weight packed into Jesus' message than a, clear, than a cursory glance could reveal to us. This is the language of the kingdom of God, and the concepts employed are rich with revelatory connotation. Let's, play co- let's pay close attention lest we begin to feel as though we have free reign over the house, as it were, as we saw in the example of the servants in our analogy today. Deferred consequences are easy to ignore. If it's going to be a long time before the master returns, we could find ourselves susceptible to all kinds of mismanagement, abuse, laziness. But all of these things we indulge at our soul's peril. So let us pay attention today and glean wisdom, encouragement, and equipping from the Word of God. To organize our thoughts to this end, I would submit to you by way of heading today that our understanding of kingdom waiting analogies and parables is enhanced as we consider the following. Three main points today. First, cross-discourse analysis. We can understand these waiting analogies and parables further as we analyze them in light of the other discourses in Matthew. Matthew 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, and chapter 18, we will touch on a few verses from each just briefly this morning to see how the theme of waiting, and particularly 
this servant-master relationship has appeared throughout the course of Jesus' teaching. This will help us to get the context, the broader context, of what we see in our text today. Secondly, this morning, major theme or a major point, kingdom framework anticipated. I would like to touch on a few passages from Daniel 3, in fact. Chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Brief mentions of a future kingdom of God that were anticipated in Old Covenant prophecy. This also will help us to undergird today's text with some broader context in view. And finally this morning, real-time application with respect to those three key words, danger, diligence, and decisiveness, we will see in one case, a particular case in history with one church in Thyatira in Revelation, how these words of Jesus' fifth discourse well applied. All of this will help us today if we find any similar circumstances that we face for our day. So let us, first of all, consider the great cross-discourse analysis Let's consider the great discourses of Matthew by cross-discourse analysis. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And recall the first great discourse of Matthew is in chapters 5 through 7. And we refer to it commonly as the Sermon on the Mount. In these passages, Jesus has revealed the ethics of the kingdom of God or the constitution of the kingdom of God. He has expounded on specifics. But he closes his instruction by drawing the attention of the disciples to take very seriously the relationship of His Lordship and sovereignty in the giving of this word, and consequently, their attestation, their obedience and submission to it. We read of this in Matthew 7, 21 through 27. Listen as Christ declares His word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. We can understand the kingdom waiting analogies and parables a little more fully as we consider some cross-discourse analysis. In this first discourse, we see that Jesus uses the paradigm of foolish versus wise. He says that everyone who hears these words and does not do them, or and does them, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, it did not fall. Everyone who hears the words of mine and uh, does not do them, will be like the foolish man. And these two examples, in a different parable or analogy, Jesus is drawing out the difference between those who, uh, who declare, they confess some kind of allegiance to Him, but there is a separation, there's a distinction that He draws. 
There are those who are wise and there are those who are foolish. We see this theme continue in the course of uh, this, the fifth discourse in Matthew 24 on into 25. There is a distinction likewise between the ten virgins. There are the wise ones who trim their lamps and have plenty of oil and therefore are ready when the bridegroom comes. And there are the foolish ones who are not prepared. And therefore in the day when they are needed and in the day of his return, they do not, he comes in a day like a thief or in the night like a thief. They do not expect it. They're caught flat-footed, unprepared. Uh, Jesus has said also in our text today that who is, he asked the question, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household? And of course, contrasted to this is the wicked servant, who would be the unfaithful, would be the foolish servant, who does not take good care of his master's possessions and lets it slip into his mind that, you know, uh, I can get away with anything because he, my master is not looking over my shoulder and he forgets the promise of his soon return. The words that his master has spoken to him go in one ear and out the other. As Matthew seven twenty four has told us, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a man, a foolish man, who builds his house on the sand. And so in this text, we see the similarities drawn out. We see how the parallels in Matthew 7 help us to undergird our understanding in Matthew 24. There is a sense in which uh, there, the uh, servants uh, expected that they would be in good standing by certain measures. There's the, uh, in Matthew 7, again, the false, he says that uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So in this case, we see that there are those who identify themselves as servants. After all, they're calling Christ Lord. But the ex expectation of faithfulness in their mind was different than what was in their masters. They will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do mighty works in your name? In other words, their expectation is we should be rewarded for these things. These things would render us or, or demonstrate that we are faithful. Of course, we have been good household managers, Lord. After all, we have done these spectacular works. We've cast out demons. We've prophesied. We've done many things uh, in your name. What will he say? He will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The, what the servants had in their mind as faithfulness and what Christ had in his were two entirely different things. This is why it is imperative for us to pay close attention to what Christ has laid out through the course of these discourses. When we ask ourselves, how can we be faithful stewards? How can we be diligent household managers? Well, we look to the rest of Christ's teaching to understand exactly this. We find through the course of the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, that a diligent and a faithful household manager pays heed to the word of Christ, to his authoritative truth. We find in the course of this whole text that there have been other false notions, preconceived ideas that people had that Jesus set aright, where people understood things to be one way, but in fact they were another. For instance, when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that construction appears over and over again, and it refers to setting the record straight. So if we want to be a diligent, faithful steward, 
to be found with our oil or our, our wick trim and our lamp filled with oil, to be taking good care and having our master's affairs in order upon his return, we must take heed to what he has said through the course of all his discourses in regard to anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, forgiveness, love of enemies, the Beatitudes, the whole works that we find in Discourse 1 and the entire teaching of Christ. Let's move to another example in Matthew chapter 10. Again, we're looking at a cross-discourse analysis to discover how we can be faithful in our, in our call to be household stewards. Our understanding of these kingdom-waiting analogies is enhanced as we consider the following. This is Matthew 10, verse 21 through 25. Here we have Jesus declaring, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He says, a servant is not above his teacher, nor a servant, or a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So two themes we see in these few verses that mirror Matthew 24. The first is the coming of the Lord or when the Son of Man comes. He says by the, a timing indicator of what will happen in the relatively near future as he has said again in Matthew 24. Surely this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Likewise, he has said in Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before, and here it is, the Son of Man comes. So there's an expectation of return and accounting and imminence. And I submit to you primarily, in the first case, the fulfillment is the A.D. 70 judgment, which will take place in Jerusalem proper and, in the and, uh, and will accost the temple. The warring forces will come surround the city, and yes, they will destroy the city as Jesus has prophesied in Matthew 24. Not one stone will be left upon another. In this passage in Matthew 10, we see a similar timing indicator. He's giving them marching orders. He says, diligent waiting looks like in this text, taking the gospel from one town to another. He also says that there are other things to expect, and this is the second theme. He says, just as a master of a house, um, uh, just as a master of the house has servants, and therefore they're related to one another, they share in similar experiences, as he has been persecuted and maligned and abused, so those who are the servants can expect the same. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So we see here, by cross-discourse analysis, that a faithful and a diligent steward, one who manages the household well, of the master of the house can expect to be treated like his master has been treated. Don't be discouraged when there are the mockers and the scoffers who stand about 
the work of Christ's kingdom through his, in many cases, minority and small and fledgling church, moving forward with uh, difficulty, uh, recognizing that there's a decisive accounting coming, even though they're in dangerous times, they realize that they, they realize in light of this that they must be even more mindful to be faithful to the master of their house, of the house. So don't be discouraged when those times of difficulty come. Uh, Christ goes to the cross in verse 26, or chapter 26 through 27. We see his passion laid out. We see what he will endure. So after he has delivered these words in Matthew 10 and in Matthew 24, it is followed by the punctuation point of his work on Calvary. The disciples would see his work on the cross. They would see his suffering. They would see the mocking, the scourging, the false accusations, the unjust trial that he, he would go through. And they would realize what he had told them in Matthew 10. We can expect similar things. If we are going to be a diligent steward, the master of the house has endured certain things. Certainly the disciples can expect similar things to happen to them. So diligent waiting, good household management involves recognizing that difficulties will come. This is dangerous work. There will be those who oppose us in many different ways. Depending on the age or era, it could be physical death or martyrdom. In every age or era, I submit to you, it is at least misunderstanding and the scoffing and derision of the majority culture that yet surrounds us. We certainly experience this today. Many of you do not have many in your family that share your convictions whose hearts have been regenerated. Many of you have family members who are not born again. And for you, you, can ex you have experienced much of what Jesus has said, that he has come in some cases to bring a sort of division, where family members will be separated from one another. And there will be a high cost to pay, even in the closest of relationships in this life, for your relationship with the Lord. This is what it looks like to be diligently managing the household of God in the meantime as his servant. And so be encouraged and don't be surprised when you fall into, kinds, all, into all kinds of uh, trials and temptations in the meantime. The third discourse in Matthew 13, again, gives us good cross-reference to further underscore the meaning and the weight behind Jesus' waiting analogies and parables. Let's consider how they're enhanced as we read these verses in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house, notice the language there, the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. In this passage, again, we see the language uh, used, the master of the house and servants. We also see the analogy of a wheat field employed as well in this parable. That is to say, then, by emphasizing this waiting time and what we can expect and should expect, is that in this, 
in this passage, Jesus gives us the conditions of the house or those who associate with it, if you will. There are those who grow up alongside the weeds who themselves, in fact, are wheat. There is a mixed uh, bag, if you will. There is mixed field uh, that we labor in in this life. There are many who grow discouraged, and I have been among them tempted to be very discouraged when we see those who confess faith in Christ showing themselves they have no faith at all or in uh, deeply dangerous backsliding where they uh, declare that Christ is their Lord. They seem to have a good outward show of following Him, but like the various planting parables, they soon prove to have no root. The sun of trials comes and their plant withers. This is a picture of, of many of our experiences today, is it not? How many of you have friends or family that have confessed faith and in the past have shown something of fruitfulness, at least apparently so, but like the fig tree picture that Jesus used, and I believe Matthew 21, you go and it looks like there's life, but it's only leaves, there are no figs, and you find that this, in fact, may be a weed rather than wheat. And you ask yourself, Lord, uh, what is going on here? I, you know, it would, it's most encouraging to us when there is a substantial added growth, when the church is gaining momentum, when members are added, and we hate to see those who we thought were counted among our ranks falling behind or uh, declaring the, or showing themselves to be fruitless in these various ways. We could grow very discouraged. We might even think, oh, I'm, a, I'm a poor steward of the house of God. If I had been doing a better job all of these who fellowship with me would be wheat. Well, this parable in Matthew 13 helps us to understand some of the conditions we are to expect. Faithful household management understands that not everything is clear-cut in this life, but it will be clear-cut and sorted out in the end. You remember the decisive reckoning. There's coming a day, as the Bible continues to lay out, where the wheat and the weeds will be separated. The weeds will be burned with unquenchable fire, and the weeds will be gathered in to the storehouses of glory. So while association with Jesus Christ, while the body of Christ on the surface, the visible church, is something of an approximation from our perspective, remember during this waiting time that even though there sometimes uh, are wolves prowling in sheep's clothing, they show themselves to be such, they need to be removed from the body. There are others who show themselves not to be fruitful over time, and this can be very discouraging. And we can see these moments, these occasions, as a setback if we're not careful. Just remember that there is a reckoning coming. And remember this in two ways. Make sure that your roots are deep. Examine yourself daily to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself and take seriously your salvation. And therefore, and thereby have that assurance ever active by the Spirit's work to convict and to grow you in Christ that you are indeed a stalk of wheat. But also take heart that in this day where there are many weeds that show themselves, especially in times of trial and persecution, Remember in Matthew 24, Jesus says, many false Christs are coming. Many people are going to make false claims. And people's ears are going to be more tuned to deception because of the difficulty that is going to surround uh, the, your, your time, or the time in which you live. He says that in an age of lawlessness, the hearts of many will grow cold. 
Well, as lawlessness has increased in our land, we can expect similar things to happen, the hearts of many to grow cold. But don't be discouraged in this waiting time. The master of the house knows what he's doing. His day of reckoning is decisive. And don't forget, it will come. It is certain. In the meantime, labor as, as uh, doing the best that we can with the tools that he's given, with his word in our heart and on our lips, so that we might be found faithful upon his return. Finally, this morning, by cross-discourse analysis, to move to chapter 18, if you would, verses 32 through 35. In this uh, final cross-reference in Jesus' teachings, we see further, uh, further clarity on this picture of household uh, management as we read the following. Matthew 18, 32, he says, Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, you, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do for every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, there's a picture of servant and master relationship here. And in managing the household affairs well, we are told, we are instructed in this passage of the importance of forgiveness. For everyone that God has called to set over his house, to be its manager, that is, everyone who is a true believer, they have been forgiven much. Their sins, their crimes against the Holy One have been washed away at the cost of his son's own shed blood. The father's son was sent to the cross his blood was shed, and by that payment, your debt was forgiven, believer. Now, what does it say about a household manager who forgets the relationship between his, between his master and himself and demonstrates that forgetfulness in not forgiving those under his charge, in holding offense against them? What does it say about him? Well, it says that he is not living in light of the master. He is like one in Matthew 24 who goes about in an abusive way, uh, cavorts with drunkards and uh, beats other servants and so on. And then when the master comes in a day he doesn't expect and that reckoning time occurs, he proves himself to be a failure. He proves himself to have, been, to have totally forgotten the relationship between his master and himself. Well, we might ask ourselves in Matthew 24, how can we uh, be managing the house well? And one answer comes in Matthew 18, in living in light of grace, forgiving much because we have been forgiven much, much more. And as we are faithful to do this, and as occasions come in the course of our relationships within the church, where grace must be extended and there are offenses that, can be, uh, that need to be dealt with, Remember that managing the house well means living in light of grace and walking out our forgiveness one to another. Second major point this morning, we can understand the kingdom waiting analogies and parables. And they are further enhanced as we consider kingdom framework anticipated. There's kingdom framework anticipated all the way back in the Old Testament and in many, play, in many places, in fact, but this morning, let's consider the book of Daniel and just a few references that help us to realize 
the context of what is going on in Matthew 24. First of all, Daniel 2, 44 through 47. In those days, or in the days of those kings, the, king of, or the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone that was uh, cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Three times in our, the passages we'll touch on today, revelation has come to Nebuchadnezzar the king. God has used this great emperor, this imperial figure, to bring a message of his future kingdom to the world through his servant Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, unlikely young Hebrew uh, men that are, uh, have been exiled, brought into this pagan kingdom. God uses them to point out aspects of his kingdom in the future in the most powerful of ways. And in this case, it comes in the form of a dream. Daniel interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar receives. In the night, he sees a great image, the head of gold. He sees the shoulders, the chest of silver. Uh, he sees the thighs, the middle of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And we find further in the course of the book of Daniel, these different parts of the anatomy of this statue associated with great empires, great kingdoms of this world. But then something happens. There's coming a day in history where a stone not cut by human hand will be taken from the mountain and it will roll towards the statue. It will make contact at the feet of clay and iron and it will crumble. And the winds of the summer threshing floor will take the pulverized dust of the kingdoms of this world and spread it all across the landscape of history. My question for you this morning is, when did this stone first make contact? When did this stone, not cut by human hands, destroy the kingdoms of this world? Well, I submit to you that we are listening to the contact of the stone striking the kingdoms of this world as we read Jesus' own words in the gospel. The stone was Jesus Christ. It was his kingdom come. Jesus reveals his message of the kingdom all the way through Matthew's gospel. It's no accident that uh, he shares in Matthew 25, back to our text, this is one of the passages that will soon follow, that we'll cover in, in, in weeks coming up. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who take their lamps, and so on. Uh, he says, uh, there will, uh, he has compared the, uh, the kingdom of heaven to, to many things, as we have seen throughout the course of his discourses. In other words, there's coming a day of reckoning where the kingdoms of this world will be confronted by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this day has come when Christ has arrived incarnate on this earth. He has come with a message of the kingdom. And though the point of contact of the stone with the idol, the kingdoms of this world, is one that maybe is different than was anticipated or imagined, 
to those who read the prophecies of Daniel, it is nevertheless glorious and it is nevertheless powerful and we will accomplish God's perfect ends. This is helpful for us. Why? Because it gives us encouragement. When we read in Matthew 24, Jesus says, you will be laboring under conditions that could be deceptive and difficult and, as we've said, dangerous, requires diligence. Remember, that, however, that there is a decisive reckoning coming. We can be more faithful as managers of the house, recognizing that in our service to the kingdom of God, he is destroying the kingdoms of this world. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What will he be doing? Well, he will be taking care of his master's affairs. He will be diligent about the household management, keeping it clean, keeping things well sorted, and so on in, in the parable, taking care of the house. So a, a servant who is a good manager of the house does so in full expectation of the reward that his master will give him and also that he will be scrutinized for the quality of work that he is doing on the home. The uh, faith uh, that is necessary for the duty is based on the relationship of the master to himself. If the master is the most impressive, powerful, and gracious, and loving individual that he has ever met, how much more motivated will that servant be to take good care of his master's affairs? Well, in, in our case, as servants of Jesus Christ, we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who will destroy every other kingdom, power, and authority, civilization, and culture who does not bow its knee before him. Therefore, if we live in a time of, his, of waiting where he has not exercised his power to pulverize the naysayers in our day, don't be discouraged. Continue to labor. There is a day of decisive reckoning. And Daniel proves it. Jesus is sharing the message of the kingdom. And the Old Testament and the prophecies of Daniel give us what to expect. It instruct us on what to expect as to the power, the intensity, the sovereignty, and the work of this kingdom that will come. There's also uh, not only the future of the kingdom is revealed in dream form to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2, but there's also the cost of disobedience that is highlighted in chapter 3. The stories or the uh, account of the conflict between the kingdom of God in prophetic form and the kingdoms of this world, the most powerful of kings at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, with his expansive empire, is illustrative indeed. In chapter 3, verse 28, we have the record of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's salvation from the fiery furnace. Then we have this confession from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his, angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. We continue in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. 
It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs! How mighty His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, the power of this king and this kingdom, the king of heaven, has been revealed to this, em- this emperor at the time. Nebuchadnezzar confesses as much, again, as he sees the works of God in his own day. But he also makes a decree, and this decree is, is uh, very it's insightful, and I, can, and I would submit to you that it is a foreshadowing in prophetic language of the day of reckoning or the cost of disobedience for the king of heaven. He says in this decree that any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that would be the one true God. What will happen to them? What can they expect? They shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. This language comes to our mind. We're reminded of it in Matthew 24, as we have read. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, echoing something of the sanctions that Nebuchadnezzar delivered for those who reject the authority of the king of heaven, Jesus, echoing the sanctions, declares that in the day of reckoning, there, it will, there will be an, a decisive accounting, and there will be those who are cut in pieces. He says that they will be thrown, they will be cast away into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This was the expectation in Nebuchadnezzar's day as well for those who did not pay attention to the ultimate authority. Nebuchadnezzar knew the basic, basics of a kingdom. After all, he had a great, quite successful one. He was the sovereign. He had his subjects under them. He knew his realm, how far it reached. And he uh, exerted his law, his ethical decrees over this uh, entire area. When Nebuchadnezzar met a, a king of higher authority, he understood that he must subject himself to him. In the Near East, there are often... Uh, it's treaties called suzerain treaties, where you had a greater vast king and a lesser vassal. And the treaty would lay out the relationship and the terms between the two. How can I live in your uh, favor? The lesser king uh, basically asking of the greater king. The greater king then lays out the terms. He says, this is what you must do. This is the history of our relationship together. After all, I am the sovereign. This is what you must do. The ethics, the demands are laid out. If you, go, if you follow these faithfully, here are the blessings. If you fall short in them, here are the sanctions. And then this is how the covenant will proceed in the future. And so knowing this full well, when Nebuchadnezzar, becomes head-to-head, butts heads with the king of heaven, and finds that he has encountered a sovereign that so far eclipses his own authority that it causes him to shudder in fear. He realizes that he has the power to cut him in pieces, and so he says, shame on you, or he, he says that there will be a consequences for anyone else who does the same. He instructs for the benefit of his subjects, that they had better obey the king of heaven. Otherwise, 
they would, will uh, be utterly destroyed. And so this is the kingdom framework that's anticipated in the Old Covenant. Even in Daniel, we might ask the question, if Nebuchadnezzar could see these things so clearly, how much more ought we to see them in our day when the king himself has come and preached his message to us? Thirdly, under kingdom framework anticipated, if we go to Daniel chapter 4, we see ultimate subjugation pictured in the plight of Nebuchadnezzar as he continues to become an object lesson for the superior authority of heaven. And uh, Daniel 4.34, we read, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven. The days he's referring to are those which he ate grass like an ox because he had exalted his pride above the Lord. He is learning his final lesson here, and he confesses this as we read. My reason returned to me, he says. I lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Our understanding of the kingdom waiting analogies and parables is enhanced as we consider the kingdom framework that was anticipated by these prophecies in Daniel. Specifically with Nebuchadnezzar, we've touched on three points in his life where he comes in contact with the authoritative word of God. And in each case, he is subdued. In each case, he is humbled. And he recognizes the severity of what is going on. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we have come in contact with the word of God. Will we humble ourselves before it? More than this, like Nebuchadnezzar, we are called to, to uh, share with the people that we come in contact with the authority of the king of kings, and to lay out before them the uh, terms and conditions of his rule, and to reveal to them their plight if they do not conform, submit, surrender. If they are not born again, if they don't come under the authority of this king, there is coming a day of decisive reckoning where they will be destroyed, cut in pieces, and thrown into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if the greatest of all kings in all history realized this, and it was to his own peril that he ignored it, and there, was this inter, or, and there were these examples where Christ intervened and removed his reasoning, his power to rule, and his means of governing. For until he confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord in so many words, how much more ought we take seriously the word of God as it has been revealed to us in so many more glorious shades of revelation in the new covenant. There is coming a day of ultimate subjugation. The subjugation of Nebuchadnezzar shows this. The kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of our God. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that there is coming a day where every enemy of Jesus Christ will be placed under his feet. 
and he is placing enemies under his feet incrementally with each minute of history that ticks on his sovereign clock according to his perfect will. This ultimate subjugation of all powers, all rulers, all authorities, all individuals on this earth will come. So let us be faithful stewards of the household of God in light of this. Yes, we may feel like our job is thankless at times, that there are moments where we feel under persecution and duress, that we are subject to the uh, sovereignty of this world. But in truth, this is just an interim time. There is coming a day where every king, power, rule, and authority will share the fate of Nebuchadnezzar. They will either repent in light of the revealed God of heaven, or they will be cut in pieces and thrown into the lake of fire and spend the rest of eternity weeping and gnashing their teeth. Finally, this morning, real-time application. We've drawn something of a context from the book of Matthew, the book of Daniel. Let's continue to add a little bit of background information for how to be faithful as a household steward by turning to a specific example that is relevant for the church in Revelation chapter 2. There are seven letters written to seven specific churches, a small islands of, of uh, faithfulness, of regenerate believers that have been called out from the pagan world to be a light, to be a lampstand, as it were, in a dark age. And among these seven letters, which are helpful because they provide for us so much instruction of how to labor under similar conditions, we find among them the church of Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 20. Let us read. But I have this against you. This is Jesus speaking to the church says that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end To him I will give authority over the nations, and I will rule them with a rod of iron. And and when earthen pots, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is real-time application of the household management analogy of Matthew 24. First of all, we see that there is danger in the context of the church in Thyatira. In uh, Revelation 2, 20 through 23, we find a warning of the personification of the sin, the besetting sin of the era or of the time, the culture that they're living in, is Jezebel. This woman Jezebel, in, in this sense, Jesus refers to the spirit of the age, 
the popular apostasy of the hour. That which is overcoming so many people with like a deceptive wave of depravity sucking them in. And he's calling the church to stand, to be a faithful steward, and not to be cavorting with a Jezebel spirit. The one who would claim certain things, but in, but in essence is practicing sexual immorality and idolatry. She refuses to repent of this. This is a picture in their day of how they might fall into the trap that Jesus warned against in Matthew 24. When he said, be careful, I will come in a day when you least expect. And the last thing that you want to happen in that day is to find yourself as a wicked servant saying, my master is delayed. And then and under these conditions, during this interim period, he beats his fellow servants, eats and drinks with drunkards, and so on. For those who are so doing, the master will come as a thief in the night when they least expect, and there will be judgment to pay. This was the case specifically revealed to the church in Thyatira. Let us ask this question for our, in our case today. What are the sins of the hour that place great cultural pressure on the individuals, the citizens in our nation? Where are the screws uh, of this world's system, the worldview that is prevalent and popular, the besetting sins of our area? Where are the screws being tightened and placed upon us to compromise, to make concessions with the world, and to uh, lower our standards and to participate with the co- in the context of the day and age in which we live? The zeitgeist and the spirit of the age would come to destroy the church by infiltrating through temptations, desires, taking away our first love. In the church of Thyatira, these conditions were prevalent, and they're prevalent for us today. What are we to do under these conditions? Well, the command is in Revelation 2 to hold fast that which you have until I come. To be diligent, a good household manager, holding fast, continuing faithful, standing strong, and obeying the commandments of the Lord, such as we have them in all the scriptures. As we see this in the course of uh, Revelation 2, with the instructions to Thyatira, we find that this call to be diligent is one that will be rewarded. The one who conquers and who keeps his works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations to rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. There's uh, this reference to the authority of Christ compared to a rod of iron wielded by himself and his servants comes from Psalm chapter 2 where the kingdoms of the world are called to bow before the uh, Messiah King and if they do not, they will be destroyed and shattered as the rod of iron dashes them like clay pots. In uh, Matthew 24 and 25, there is an expectation of reward as well, um, or, of, or of accounting, a, a decisive accounting. Who is the faithful servant whom his master will set over his, all, all his household to give them their food at the proper time? Well, blessed is that servant whose master will find so doing when he comes. In other words, a servant who proves himself faithful will be given responsibility over more of his master's estate. And so there is a reward relationship for those who are diligent during the interim time managing the household well. Finally, we find this decis- the, uh, the theme of decisiveness here 
in uh, Revelation 2 as well. There is a real sense of imminent danger. But let's go back to the beginning. Or, or I get, In uh, verse 18, we read from, or we have a picture of Christ Himself, the one who is delivering these words. Listen. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and, is, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, and your servant, uh, service, and so on. It's important to recognize that when Christ delivers His words in the book of Revelation, He does so from a vantage point of triumph, of victory. He Himself now has so far eclipsed the kingdoms of this world, whereas the chest uh, and the uh, shoulders were bronze and the statue uh, in the book of Daniel uh, here, Christ is pictured with feet as bronze. He is the ultimate authority. He is the king over the kings of the earth. He has assumed this place of prominence, and now he commands that his church be faithful unto him, and he exudes authority, exercises authority over all who fall short of his commands. In the beginning of Revelation, we see the picture of Christ as one who rules and reigns in glory, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In chapter 1, verse 8, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come. Rewinding a little bit to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. There's this sense of uh, reckoning, of decisive accounting, that the whole book of Revelation uh, shows time and again. John is encouraging the church with these words given to him by Christ, but he's also instructing them that it is so important that they be diligent because... There is a coming. There's an expected accounting. There's destruction around, just around the corner for those who are not faithful to their task. But for those who are, there's going to be a crown. There's going to be peace, a glorious expectation of an exalted future. He says, again, hold fast until I come. In chapter 2, verse 25, the one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Each church to whom he writes in these seven verses, it's similar language. There's either an expectation of judgment because of their unfaithful stewardship, or there's an expectation of reward because they are listening to his words. They are not following uh, the lawlessness of their age. They're not just hearing his words and forgetting them but they're hearing them and they're doing them. They're building their house on the foundation of stone, not on sand. They're not just parading about and boasting in superficial, spectacular things that they think are impressive, but instead they take seriously the word of Christ and are following him as he has instructed. They are not uh, discouraged even though they live in a day where the spirit of Jezebel is knocking at the door and in some cases, presumably tares are growing up among the wheat. They know that those weeds will be sifted out and removed if they are faithful. In the course of the book of Revelation, we find that in order for a church's lampstand to remain, they must 
follow through and apply Matthew 25 or 24. They must be diligent stewards, managing the affairs of, their, uh, of the master of the house well, so that when he comes on a day when they do not expect, at an hour that they do not know, they will not be cut to pieces and put with the hypocrites, but instead that they will receive, uh, that they will receive a position, an exalted position of privilege and reward as their master places them over his whole household and as they stand beside him ruling with a rod of iron, exercising along with him as his agents, vicegerents, authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Brothers and sisters, won't it be amazing when we finally fall in line in the victory parade of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated hell and the grave, the one who has washed away our sins in his own blood. If the last and greatest of all enemies has been defeated by our conquering Messiah, if he has ascended and received his kingdom as Daniel prophesied and Christ fulfilled before the ancient of days, if he now rules and reigns in all the tribes of the earth, will see his glorious rule at his point of reckoning, at his decisive day of accounting, whether it's in time in history as he has come in the past and will come again in judgment on a people that deny him, or whether it's at the second coming when all of history will be finally concluded at the exclamation point of his powerful return where everything will be set aright and perfect justice will be enacted. If this is our God and we will join with him one day, how encouraging is that for us? How much more can we be faithful about what seems to be mundane tasks of waking up, opening our eyes, and opening the scriptures, uh, sharing the word of Christ with our family, walking in the way that we ought as we conduct our daily affairs, enduring in some cases the scourging of others and the scoffing and the mockery of the world in which we live. We can do so recognizing the powerful price that Christ has paid and the manifest defeat of every last enemy, even our own sin, through our salvation. And as we do so, we will find ourselves following uh, the intent and the heart and the instruction, the exhortation of the waiting analogies and parables of Matthew 24 and 25. Let us pray this morning that we would be found faithful so doing. O oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that by the power of Christ, you have declared victory over all authorities, powers, kingdoms, and emperors as we've read of this earth. But even greater power to destroy us, Lord, was in our heart, our sin, and the judgment that it deserved hung over us, Lord, like a master that absolutely controlled our lives and our destiny and would send us to hell forever. You have exercised your authority over all of these in defeating the kingdoms of the earth, and in defeating the sin in our heart, Lord Jesus. We thank you for this. This is the power and the authority. This is the proprietary rights of the master of the house of our Lord and Savior. And so in light of this, I pray that we would manage your affairs well. Help us to remember who you are and what you've done. So on the day of your return or when you call us home, we will be found faithful, managing your household well. 
Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction to each of our hearts where we have failed in this area. And I pray that you would show us in, the minds, in our mind's eye to our spirit man the powerful authority that you have and the gracious blood that was shed to set our heart and mind aright and to encourage our feet to walk, our hands to actions, our mouths to confession, the glories of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.